All right, we're going through our study in the Old Testament. We're up to 2 Kings chapter 8 we've been working on. Just some reminders on the background of what was going on at that time. You know, the kingdom of Israel has been divided into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom at this point. And for us, the Lord's been spending quite a bit of time telling us about the northern kingdom and the kings during that time. Remember, they were all uh, evil kings. They didn't have any good kings at all in the northern kingdom. And now we're going to see the Lord uh, turn our attention to the southern kingdom. We started to see some of that last time. And uh, we're going to jump back in here at uh, verse uh, chapter 8, verse 16. If you want to jump back in there with me, we'll get back into the story. It says, Now in the fifth year of Joram the son of Ahab, king of Israel. Now that's the northern kingdom. It gets a little tricky here. We went through this before, but it might help just to kind of walk through here again. So the king of Israel is the northern kingdom. It says Jehoshaphat, being king of Judah, Judah's the southern kingdom, Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, began to reign as king of Judah. So uh, again here, the king of Israel is referring to the northern kingdom. Kingdom of Judah is referring to the southern kingdom. Verse 17, he was 32 years old when he became king, and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem. So that was a pretty short reign for him. And we know from the rest of the the story here, he died at the end of his reign. So he uh, would have made it to about 40 years old. He had a very short reign, and uh, his life came to an end there. Uh, Verse 18, he walked in the way of the kings of Israel, that's the northern kingdom, just as the house of Ahab had done. So even though he was king in the southern kingdom, he's following the evil ways of the the northern kingdom. Ahab is not a good name at all in scripture there. He's a very evil guy. So he he walked just as the house of uh, of um, Ahab had done, for the daughter of Ahab was his wife, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. So this king of Judah, he was an evil king, even though he wasn't a part of the northern kingdom, he's got ties there. Uh, So he's just as evil as the kings that are in the northern kingdom. And we're told why again that he was like that, because he had this very evil influence of his wife in his life. She was the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. And where does it say he did evil, if you notice at the end of verse 18? He did evil in the sight of the Lord. So a reminder here, the Lord sees everything. You know, nothing is hidden from him. And the Lord sees evil for what it truly is. So when people try to justify their sin, and they try to say that their sin isn't really that bad, that's one of the ways the enemy deceives us into thinking our sin isn't really that bad. Uh, The Lord is not fooled or deceived by that way of thinking. You know, man can be deceived, but the Lord cannot be. So when the Lord says something is evil, it truly is evil. Now, verse 19 goes up. Yet the Lord would not destroy Judah for the sake of his servant David, as he promised to give to him, uh, to give a lamp to him and his sons forever. So we saw that last time, but it lets us see here that they did so much evil under this king of Judah that the Lord had every right to destroy him, you know? But he showed them mercy instead, and it was only because of his promise to David. So that was a, this was a very wicked time in the southern kingdom. My goodness, if we'd have been alive and walking through those areas at this time, I think we'd have thought, am I in the northern kingdom that's so wicked, or am I really in the southern kingdom, because it's just as wicked as the north. And uh, the real danger there of allowing evil to get anywhere close to you, it spreads, you know? So this should give us, though, as we see God's promise here, it should give us great confidence in trusting the promises that God made to us in the Bible. I mean, if if the Lord kept this promise, (laughs) even though the odds were totally against the southern kingdom surviving such a severe but just judgment of destruction from the Lord, then we can be sure that the Lord is going to keep every promise he makes in the rest of the Bible. This, to me, had to be a tough one to swallow. Like, oh, my goodness, you know. But now let's go on to verse 20. In his days, so during the days of this king of the, the, his name's Joram, 
And, and by the way, there's a little confusion here too. The northern king is named Joram at this time and the southern king is named Joram. So and, and the, the Bible tries to distinguish a little bit by calling one Jehoram and the other Joram. It's the same name. They just kind of one's a little shorter than the other, but it's the same. So in his days, talking about the, the southern kingdom here of, uh, with Joram in uh, charge, Edom, another location that revolted against Judah's authority and made a king over themselves. So get this, since this guy, this king, he's married to the sister of the king of the north. You know, she's one of Ahab's daughters that he's married to here. So he is tied into the family. They probably thought that this alliance, this marriage is going to bring, uh, actually strengthen the southern kingdom. But the opposite happened. You know, the spiritual side of this bad decision actually weakened the kingdom. And the Lord lets us see this right here. Edom, that had previously been under the authority of the southern kingdom, uh, they saw this as a good time to revolt and a time to get free. <laughs> it's like, hey, uh, we see that they're really distracted here by evil, so it's a good time for us to break and uh, say we're going to be, be our own boss. So they did. And they even made their own king to rule over them. So it's like, we're done with you guys. we got our own ruler. We don't need you guys. Okay? And the kingdom of Judah couldn't do anything about it. They couldn't stop them. And uh, we get a hard lesson from this. When a person joins forces with evil, it is not going to make them stronger. Because in the long run, it's actually going to make them weaker. You know, the devil tries to fool us into following his ways. And he entices us with this thought, you know, that things are going to work out in your favor. They're going to be better if you do this. <laughs> but the devil, he's a deceiver, don't forget. And he is an expert at fooling people. That's why we need to stick as closely to the Lord as we can. And that's why we need to follow God's word. That's the safest place to be, okay? So we're given the details then of how this happened with Edom in verse 21. It says, so Joram went to Zaire and all his chariots with him. And Joram here is, is that king of the south. Uh, he went to uh, Zaire and all his chariots with him. Then he rose by night and attacked the Edomites who had surrounded him. And the, they also surrounded the captains of the chariots. And the troops, that's his troops, they fled to their tents. <laughs> so this Joram now, he's the king of Judah, the southern kingdom. And he thought he had a pretty good plan. I know these guys are going to try to rebel against us. I know they're going to revolt. I think if I can get my troops out there and we can attack them at night, we'll catch them off guard. Okay? But even that didn't help him because it says he was surrounded, even his chariots and their captains were surrounded. So his, his troops probably decided, you know, it's better for us to flee right now rather than die in this battle that we can't win. We're completely surrounded here. So they headed back to their tents and they called it a night. <laughs> I know you call us out the battle, but we're going home, okay? We're going to take our weapons and, and go back home here. So verse 22, thus Edom has been in revolt against Judah's authority to this day. Notice that. In Libna, another place, they revolted at that time. So the Lord's letting us get some insight to this king who is married to a, a wicked lady from a wicked family and somehow thinks, you know, it's going to be a good thing for him. But it's actually got him so weak. So, so notice now how this being married to evil, as I'll call it, cost the southern kingdom. They lost ground that they never regained. Isn't this amazing? Yeah. And other regions, too, decided to revolt against them. So not only were they losing ground that they already had, but the ground under them was eroding even further. That's not a safe place to be standing, is it? <laughs> you know, it's a slippery slope when you reject the Lord's wisdom and his guidance, and it may cost you more than you could imagine. You know, the enemy tries to tell us it'll be okay. Everybody's doing this. It's no big deal. And all the time, he's, he's going to trip you up and bring you down. And when you fall, he is going to laugh at you. That's our enemy. So don't be deceived. Listen to the Lord. The Lord tells us the right way to go, and he's calling us to trust him. Even when things don't look good and they don't look right, trust him, and he'll lead us down the safe path. So verse 23 goes on. Now the rest of the acts of Joram and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? 
So Joram rested with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. Then Ahaziah, his son, reigned in his place. So this is a pretty short reign. This guy had eight years, and the Lord's going to move us on from this guy to his son called Ahaziah. Verse 25, in the twelfth year of Joram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, Ahaziah, the son of Joram, king of Judah, remember king of Judah is a southern kingdom, this guy began to reign. Ahaziah was 22 years old when he came, became king, and he reigned one year in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Athaliah, the granddaughter of Omri, king of Israel. So remember now, this guy Ahaziah, blah, we don't use these names too often. He was going to be reigning in the southern kingdom. And first of all, we're told here in Second Chronicles that he was 42 years old when he was reigning. Okay, Talking about the same story. Here it tells us he's 22 years old. I think it's probably a scribal error in uh, Second Chronicles. Uh, they probably just recorded it wrong. It doesn't make sense that uh, he'd be 42 when his dad died at the age of 40. <laughs> it just doesn't seem to fit. So it makes more sense he was probably 22 at this time. Secondly, we're told here his reign only lasted one year. That's really short. So his father had a short reign, only eight years, but uh, the Lord's only, this guy's an evil king too, like his dad. So the Lord's only give them a very short time to reign in the southern kingdom. And man, those folks ought to say, thank you, Lord, that you didn't let these guys around for longer. And thirdly here, we're told his mom, you know, given her name and everything, she was the daughter of the evil king Ahab and Queen Jezebel from the northern kingdom. So the Lord here, he's reminding us. When it mentions Omri, that was uh, Ahab's dad. So she's, the Lord made it a little bit softer here, I guess, saying Omri was the grandfather, but the dad was Ahab here and Jezebel was the mom. So the Lord's reminding us that this guy's bloodline goes back to the evil bloodline of the kings of the north. He is tied in there through this bloodline. So coming from that background, okay, if you, if you knew the background of these guys, which you just looked at and everything, it doesn't give you great confidence that he's going to be following the ways of the Lord, you know? It's like he's really tied into the evil guys up north, and I don't really expect him to, to turn us around and give us a great revival. It's kind of like somebody that comes from a political party that provide, they promote all this anti-God stuff. You just don't have a lot of hope that they're going to do much good or that they're going to do godly things while they're in office. You know, that just doesn't happen normally. So verse 27 goes on. It says, And he walked in the way of the house of Ahab, and that's a bad thing. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, like the house of Ahab. And it says, For he was the son-in-law of the house of Ahab. So it reminds us again, he had this evil influence in his life. And it came from his family background. And that caused him to walk very ungodly. You know, we get some strong warnings in this passage, again, that we need to avoid being joined with anyone who is not going to be a godly influence on us. Because if they're not going to be a godly influence, then they will be an ungodly influence in your life. Think about this. There is no neutral ground. You know, either you are for the Lord or you are against the Lord, whether you realize it or not. I want you to see something. Look at Romans chapter 5 in the New Testament. <clears throat> Romans chapter 5 speaks to this. If you look at Romans 5 and look down to verse 8, it says, But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. And notice what it says in verse 10. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, now that we're on God's side, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received 
the reconciliation. So we are changed. We are now reconciled to God. We are on his side. But before we came to the Lord, we were enemies of God. That's what that passage just told us there. So I don't know about you, but I didn't realize that I was an enemy of God before I came to Christ, you know? I think we're blind to that fact, and we probably would still never know that truth about us, you know, until the Lord showed us this in his word. So any person who has not put their faith in Christ and has not received Jesus as their savior, that person is actually an enemy of God. I don't care how religious they look, you know, they are an enemy of God, whether they realize it or not. So the Lord clearly shows us the devastating effects here that evil influence had on these two kings of the northern kingdom that we see uh, between this guy and his dad. Uh, look at verse 28. Now he went with Joram, the son of Ahab. So this is Joram of the southern kingdom going with Joram of the northern kingdom. Uh, he went with him to war against Haziel, king of Syria at Ramoth, Gilead, and the Syrians wounded Joram. So notice here, his bloodline connection with the king of the north caused him to be an ally and to go to war against Syria. This is not a good thing when you're willing to fight alongside evil and stick your neck out for evil. So verse 29, then King Joram went back to Jezreel to recover from the wounds which the Syrians had inflicted on him at Ramah, that's the northern kingdom, northern King Joram here, he had been wounded and injured here. It says, when he fought against Haziel, king of Syria, and Ahaziah, the son of Joram, king of Judah, went down to see Joram, the son of Ahab in Jezreel, because he was sick. So I'm sorry, we're under the second king. I'm still on Joram there. Ahaziah is the king of the south at this point. I told you this part gets confusing. You know, I, I hate to walk through this part myself. I'm sorry. It's just so tricky going back and forth and jumping around. We're in Ahaziah's time, and it's a very short time. <laughs> so uh, this is going to, this, this shows us here again. He's going to visit the evil king of the north while he was wounded in battle, all right? And this just shows us again the tight alliance that was there between the king of the southern kingdom and the king of the northern kingdom. They got that bloodline, that family tie. And, you know, when you see that tightness and closeness, what do they say? Birds of a feather flock together. So these guys are not good guys, okay? And there's a reason the Lord told us that. We'll see as we get into the next section here. So chapter nine, verse one, and Elisha the prophet called one of the sons of the prophets and said to him, get yourself ready. Take this flask of oil in your hand and go to Ramoth Gilead. Now when you arrive at that place, look there for Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi and go in and make him rise up, notice, from among his associates and take him to an inner room. So Jehu here is, is not the son of King Jehoshaphat, and the Lord makes it clear. He tells us that he comes from a different family line. He's from Nimshi, but he's the son here of a different Jehoshaphat. So in case that double name confuses you too. Uh, verse three, he's told here, take that flask of oil, and pour it on his head and say, thus says the Lord. So as this, this prophet, this young prophet comes into Jehu, he's supposed to get his attention, take him aside, and then pour this oil on his head. And here's this message he has for him from the Lord. Thus says the Lord, I have anointed you king over Israel, meaning the northern kingdom. Then he says to the young prophet here, open the door and flee and do not delay. It means get out of there, okay? So some have wondered, when they look at this, why Elisha didn't go himself? You know, why did he send another prophet to go do this? But we see here that as we get to the rest of the story, the Lord is going to help Jehu to get to the position of king by using secrecy as part of his strategy and a part of his protection. So if Elisha would have gone himself, he would have easily been recognized and it would have drawn a lot of attention to Jehu. Uh, that wasn't needed right then. Okay, so the Lord's working here, but the work is gonna go on behind the scenes to make it more effective. So Jehu needed to work behind the scenes for this plan of the Lord to work out the way that it did. Now think about this. It's amazing 
how the Lord takes care of the important details when he is working in a person's life, you know? And I dare say that as a believer who's been serving the Lord for some time, if, if you walk with the Lord for an amount of time, you can probably look back and see how God took some of the care of some of the major details in your life too. As you look back and you see his fingerprints and stuff, say, oh, Lord, man, you took care of that one, you know? So like, praise you, Lord. Thank you that you're there watching our back. Now, as far as the secrecy in our passage here, we see that the prophet uh, even took Jehu into an inner room in a private meeting. That's what the Lord directed him to do. So at this particular moment, Jehu alone was supposed to know about the Lord anointing him uh, as king by the hand of this prophet pouring the oil over his head. And this is the directions the Lord is giving ahead of time. Now this oil again, remember it's a symbol of the Holy Spirit. So this was picturing the fact that the Lord was calling this guy and he was empowering him with the Spirit to fulfill God's work and God's calling in his life. And this is so true. We all need the power of the Holy Spirit in order to serve the Lord. Please do not make the mistake of jumping into something before you've spoken to the Lord and said, Lord, if you are calling me to this, then I pray you fill me with your spirit, empower me to do this, and that, that way you get all the glory. I don't want to tamper with things. I don't want to mess things up. I don't want to leave my fingerprints behind. I want your fingerprints to be there so you get the glory. So go on to verse 4. So the young man, this is the prophet here, the servant of the prophet, he went to Ramoth Gilead, and when he arrived, there were the captains of the army sitting, notice. And he said, I have a message for you, commander. Jehu said, for which one of us? And he said, for you, commander. So we see an interesting detail here. <clears throat> Elisha told the prophet that when he came to Jehu and his associates that they would be seated. And we see that in the fact that Elisha said in verse 2 that the young prophet should make Jehu rise up from among the men that were with him. Okay, So you're thinking, well, what's the big deal with a detail like that? A little detail like that becomes very important when you're the one that's got to deliver the message, you know. <laughs> when the young prophet came to where Jehu was, it must have really encouraged him, you know, that he walks into this place and here's all these men and they're all seated. He's like, okay, this is just like I was told it was going to be. Can you imagine if things were different? <laughs> Say the young prophet comes in and, all the, and it comes in with these men and all the guys are standing around talking. You know, yeah, he'd probably get really nervous and wonder if he went to the wrong place. <laughs> Is this the right tent? Have I found the wrong spot here? So little details from the Lord can be very encouraging for us. I think that's one reason, you know, you want to pay attention to every detail the Lord gives us in his word, especially when it comes to the promises that he makes. To the Lord, details are important. Now in verse 5 there, we're told that Jehu is the commander of, of the army, okay, that's kind of interesting. He actually started out as a chariot driver under King Ahab, and that's kind of mentioned a little bit later in the passage here, but now he has risen to be the commander of the whole army of the northern kingdom. This guy's got something going for him, right? So verse six, then he arose and he went into the house and he poured the oil on his head and he said to him, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I have anointed you king over the people of the Lord over Israel. It's very interesting here that the Lord referred to the people in the northern kingdom. This is not a good place, okay? He referred to them as the people of the Lord, Israel. Yeah, they were not even walking with the Lord at that time. And the Lord still says, these are the people of the Lord. They'd given themselves over to idolatry, and yet the Lord still called them his people. It's like somebody said, these people may have turned their back on the Lord, but the Lord didn't turn his back on them, okay? That really should encourage us personally, you know, that the Lord still loves you and me, even when we mess up really bad. You know, if we belong to Christ, he will never deny us as being his own. So don't let the devil beat you up if he gets you to stumble and fall for some temptation. Just go ahead, confess your sin, and then you can remind yourself that our Father never stops loving his children. Okay? And any of us that are parents or grandparents, we should understand that one, right? 
You don't stop loving your children during times that they're disobedient. At least I hope you don't. I've heard some parents tell their kids and stuff. I'm thinking, don't say that to your kids. That's, that's ridiculous. You don't actually stop loving them. You know, they're trying to use that for a motivator. That's not a good motivator. Don't do that. You may not be happy with them because they're bad behavior, but you never stop loving them, right? Well, God's love is so much greater than our love, right? Yeah, so the passages like this one should, should really make us appreciate his love and also help us to feel safe, knowing that he always loves us. Yeah, you know, they got that little song, the kids we teach them to, that uh, Jesus loves me, you know, when I'm good, when I do the things I should. Jesus loves me bad, even though it makes him very sad. And that's not a bad principle to teach the children, because he does love us. And he knows we're just dust, that's what he said in his word. So does he encourage us to sin? No. Does he approve us sinning? No. But when we do, it, it, it bothers him and makes him feel upset, just like us as parents. We like to see our kids mess up. But we love him and we want to see him restored. And that's God's heart as well. Okay? So verse 7 goes on. And by the way, this is kind of interesting. As the Lord is calling these people Israel, the people of the Lord, I think the same thing goes today. You look at Israel as a nation. They're not following the Lord. They haven't submitted to the Messiah. But you know what? They're the people of the Lord. Not because they deserve it or anything else, like we deserve anything, right? But God still got his hand on them. They're still his people. One day... He's going to bring that nation. They're going to receive the Messiah. They're going to receive Christ. That's coming. It's prophesied in his word. It's going to happen. Verse 7 goes on. <clears throat> you shall strike down the house of Ahab, your master. So this is the prophet still giving direction now uh, to Jehu. He said, you're going to be king. Lord's doing that. You shall strike down the house of Ahab, your master, that I may avenge the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of the Lord at the hand of Jezebel. So the Lord commissions Jehu here to completely wipe out the bloodline of Ahab. And that was because he, you know, Jezebel was his wife. He didn't stop her from killing God's prophets. She, she was a wicked lady. We were told there at one time, you know, that she was been massacring the, massacring the prophets of the Lord, basically as many as she could get her hands on in the northern kingdom. You remember the Lord had somebody pull, pull some aside and hide them out so they'd survive, but she was out to kill them all. She was a very wicked lady. And Ahab could have, or, yeah, he could have stopped her, but he didn't. So there's judgment on his household because of that. And remember this in the scripture, the Lord says, vengeance is mine. And this is one of the places where the Lord clearly shows that he is going to avenge the death of his prophets. So people who think they're going to get away with things who, or who think that, you know, God is never going to come after them for the evil stuff they've committed, they're going to be in for a big surprise. Yeah, the Lord keeps his word. He, vengeance is his, and he's not forgetting things. He's going to deal with them uh, for those who don't come and repent before him. So even if it looks like these folks are getting away with it in this life, their judgment in, is coming in eternity. And we know the Lord is perfectly just, meaning that he measures out the exact amount of judgment that fits the crime. Now, the basic thing is we can have all our sins forgiven at the cross, right? Jesus paid for them all. But for people who refuse that kindness and mercy of the Lord, they're going to have to deal with God face to face, and that's going to be scary, okay? And before somebody gets upset here, when you think about, wait a minute, you mean the Lord told Ahab here to wipe out his entire family line? Before you get upset at the Lord for that, stop and think about this. They had been practicing this type of, type of wickedness for a long time. We're talking decades here. And God had been sending prophets during all that time and a number of miracles all that time to warn them. Okay, But they rejected all those opportunities from the Lord. I mean, God did miracles right in front of them. And they didn't say, wow, I need to follow this God. They say, let me get done with lunch. I got to go back to my idol worship. You know, that's what they were thinking. Now, there comes a day, though, when the prophets and the miracles, they're going to come to an end. And then the Lord's judgment's going to be at hand. And this is one of those times. It's too late at that point. You know, this is where the, the people were at in the, the family line of, of Ahab. They had come to the end of their opportunities to repent. Now it's only judgment from the Lord that remains for them. 
And verse 8 goes on, for the, house, for the whole house of Ahab shall perish. This is a large judgment. And I will cut off from Ahab all the males in Israel, both bond and free. So it doesn't matter if they're uh, situation in life has changed, whether they're a servant working for somebody or they're in charge somewhere, they're free. God says, I'm going to deal with them. So I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah. We saw them before in the past. Both of those dynasties came to an end. The Lord wiped out all the descendants who would have had opportunity to come to the throne in those families. You know, and that's what he's going to do here too. Uh, God's judgment brought those family lines to an end, and that's what the Lord's going to do for Ahab's family line as well. Verse 10, the dog shall eat Jezebel, that's Queen Jezebel, the wife of Ahab, the dog shall eat Jezebel on the plot of ground at Jezreel. The Lord even names the spot, and there shall be none to bury her. And he opened the door and fled. <laughs> so... Although Jezebel wasn't a male in line for the throne, she's not going to get away with the evil that she's done either. You know, he said he's going to wipe out all the males. Well, Jezebel's not one of them, but she's responsible and God's going to deal with her. So this end that he describes her, this is a very disgraceful end for a queen, but she deserved it. You know, to not have a proper burial would have been shameful enough, but to have her body eaten by dogs... Remember, they're the street scavengers who is seen as extremely unclean animals by the Jews, right? And that's even a further disgrace. And it's like, this lady deserves all she's going to get here. And even with all that, her troubles are just beginning. Because she's going to go into eternity to await the future wrath and judgment of God for her evil and wicked deeds that were done on this earth. She hasn't even seen that part yet. Ooh, mercy's sakes. Yeah, Lord wants to see this stuff and take warning. He's not kidding when it comes to sin. He's serious. We can either choose Christ or we're going to choose judgment, and it's up to us on that one. Now, after the prophet delivered the message here, he did exactly what Elijah said. He took off. <laughs> yeah, and this may have been, you know, a help to keep the secrecy issue, that you don't hang around, don't sit and talk with the guys. You get out of there, Okay. It also might have added to the impact of the message. It's kind of like you drop the bomb and you just leave, you know. And the people are saying, wait a minute, what just happened? You know, they're taken aback by the speed and the delivery of all this, just how it happened here. So verse 11 goes on. Then Jehu came out to the servants of his master. So he'd been in the room with this other prophet, you know, and he comes out here. And one of them said to him, said to him, is all well? Why did this madman come to you? And he said to them, you know the man and his babble. <laughs> so these guys are trying to figure out what in the world was all that commotion, you know? And from what they saw, this guy comes in there kind of crazy-like, and he's got a message for the commander. So at first, you know, they're thinking, this prophet must have been off his rocker. And, and Jehu decides to kind of play it down himself. He goes, oh, yeah, you know, this guy, you know. and Because he might have been wondering, <laughs> somebody said... He might have been wondering if you guys were playing a joke on him, you know, having this guy show up and pump him up that you're the king. And he comes out and says, I'm going to be the king. They all laugh. Oh, get out of here. You know, we just pulled this joke on him. So he's a little soft on this too at the moment. But look what happens in verse 12. They said, a lie. They're saying, you're lying to us, man. They said, uh, tell us now. They want to know what's really going on. So he said, thus and thus he spoke to me. So he told them all the details saying, thus says the Lord, I have anointed you king over Israel. So by this time, think about it, they're probably seeing the oil dripping off of his head. You know, they don't anoint like we do with a couple of drops. They pour it, like it says, they poured it on there. So he walks out and he's got this oil coming down off of him. And they finally notice that and they're like, wait a minute, there's something else here you haven't told us about. So they think, you must be lying. What did he say to you for real? You know, something big must have just happened. So Jehu spills the beans. He tells them what's going on. Verse 13. Then each man hastened, did this in a hurry, to take his garment and put it under him on the top of the steps. So they probably were leading him up the steps, laid their garments down in front of him, and they blew trumpets saying, Jehu is king. Well, after hearing this, it's kind of a funny, it's kind of like a mini private uh, profession, procession here to announce him as king. They're the only guys around, so the only ones that know what's going on. So after hearing this, you know, the men immediately showed their submission 
and their support to Jehu as being the next king. That's what it meant by them laying these, these uh, garments down in front of him. And now he's going to step in. He's not going to step into the office of king the next day. There are some things that have to take place first before he, he gets in the office. But the Lord is putting him in charge right at this point to let him know this is what your future is. Remember, David was anointed beforehand too, before he stepped into office there. So verse 14. So Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, conspired against Joram. That was the king. So he starts to make his plans on how he's going to take over the kingdom. It goes on in verse 14. Now Joram had been defending Ramoth, Gilead, he and all Israel against Haziel, king of Syria. Remember, we saw that at the end of the last chapter. He had been at battle there. But King Joram had returned to Jezreel to recover from the wounds what the Syrians had inflicted on him when he fought with Haziel, king of Syria. And Jehu said, if you are so minded, let no one leave or escape from the city to go and tell it in Jezreel. So we did see earlier that King Joram had been wounded in battle against Syria. But Jehu here, he's calling on his troops and he's saying, if you guys are serious about this, if you really trust that this is the anointing of the Lord, then don't give anybody a chance to leave here, the city. Because he didn't want the word to get out, you know, if anybody had heard them blowing their trumpet and making the announcement that Jehu was king. Uh, he wanted Joram here to not be aware of it. Even though Joram's in a wounded state, he's not going to take any chances. So verse 16, so Jehu rode in a chariot and he went to Jezreel. For Joram was laid up there, and notice this interesting point, and Ahaziah, king of Judah, had come down to see Joram. Remember, we saw that at the end of the last chapter. So this is so amazing to me that the Lord set this up. He brought all these guys to the same place. God's got something going on here. <clears throat> Verse 17. Now a watchman stood on the tower in Jezreel, so he's, he's at the place where Joram is injured, and this is his job. He's supposed to keep lookout. And he saw the company of Jehu as he came, and he said, I see a company of men. And Joram said, get a horseman and send him to meet them, and then let him say, is it peace? So the watchman, he didn't know exactly who was coming. They probably weren't close enough for him to make them out. And the king, he was probably worried that these might be some marauders from Syria or something looking to finish him off since he was already wounded. So that's why he's wanting to know, are these riders coming in peace? I need to know what's going on here. Verse 18. So the horseman, he sends out this messenger, he went to meet him and he said, thus says the king, is it peace? And Jehu said, what have you to do with peace? And then he says, turn around and follow me. <laughs> so the watchman reported saying, the messenger went to them but he's not coming back. <laughs> you know, not what you would expect at all here. And it's probably running through Jehu's mind as this guy says, are you coming for peace? Jehu is now, he's thinking things from the Lord's perspective. Judgment's coming, and I'm the guy that's supposed to bring it, okay? And he knows why the judgment's coming, because Jezebel's been doing some real nasty, wicked stuff, okay? So that's probably all running through his mind about the butchering of the prophets and everything that came out of Jezebel's and Ahab's family. So it's kind of like he's saying, who are you to ask me about peace with all the wickedness you've done? So then he commands this messenger to join his ranks, and the guy obeys. He, he lines up with him. So verse 19, then he sent out a second horseman. So Joram's like, i got to find out what's happening here. So he sends out another messenger. And he said, who came to them? And he said, thus says the king, is it peace? And Jehu answered, what have you to do with peace? <laughs> He's not letting any of them off the hook, right? He says, turn around and follow me. Now, imagine here how puzzled that king must have been. <laughs> He's sending out these messengers who are supposed to get the info in return and tell him what's going on, and they're not coming back. So he sends out another guy, the same thing, you know. So Jehu apparently called him to follow rank, and he's, he apparently did. So verse 20, so the watchman reported saying, he went up to them, and he's not coming back either, you know. <laughs> and the driving, as he's noticing the guy that's driving the chariot, is like the driving of Jehu, the son of Nimshi, for he drives furiously. Now, Jehu must have had a reputation for driving his chariot into battle at full throttle. 
You know, you can imagine the chairs probably were moving as quickly as the guys wanted them to normally, but it's a bumpy ride. But this guy, whoa, it's as fast as his horses go. That's as fast as I'm going. So they noticed something unusual about this driver. This guy drives like his Jehu. Man, this guy's just crazy driving. So that's what the watchman saw coming at them. Verse 21. And remember Jehu, he's, he's the, he's the uh, commander of the entire army of the north. So it wouldn't be unusual for him to be there. It's a little bit unusual that he's driving like he's going into battle, though. That's kind of unusual. So verse 21. Then Joram said, make ready. And his chariot was made ready. His chariot was made ready. Then Joram, king of Israel, northern kingdom, and Ahaziah, king of Judah, the southern kingdom, went out each in his chariot. And they went out to meet Jehu and meet him on the property of, interesting, the Lord tells us this, Naboth the Jezreelite. Now, when the king found out that it was the commander of his army, you know, he never figured that Jehu was coming to fight against him. He's probably thinking, Jehu must have some really urgent message from the battle, man, that he's come back here to tell me. So he's going to go out and meet him here. And he's got his guard down. And he's basically, you know, he's, gonna, he's taken the king of the southern kingdom with him as well. That's his nephew, basically. So, yeah, let's go out and see what's going on. So they're all ready to go. But look where they're at. They're on Naboth's property. That was the man that Jezebel had murdered because he refused to sell the land, which was his family's inheritance, to Ahab, if you remember that story you went through. So Jezebel had Naboth killed and gave that land to Ahab, her husband. The Lord had prophesied, though, that Ahab's family line would be paid back in that very plot of ground. An amazing justice from the Lord, that's exactly where it's going to happen. That's why the Lord tells us where this was. So verse 22, now it happened when Joram saw Jehu that he said, is it peace, Jehu? So he answered, what peace? As long as the harlotries of your mother Jezebel and her witchcraft are so many. So Jezebel, I mean, Jehu here, he calls Jezebel a spiritual harlot and a witch. This woman had done so much darkness, man. Evil just surrounded this lady. Wow. Yeah, so he calls it, calls it out here. This is from God's perspective, okay? Verse 23, then Joram, <laughs> he knows he's in trouble. <laughs> he turned around and he fled. And he said to Ahaziah, treachery, Ahaziah. So he's trying to tell him, you need to get out of here, man. This is not good. It says, now Jehu drew his bow with full strength and he shot Joram between his arms and the arrow came out at his heart and he sank down in his chariot. He's done, okay? Yeah, he got close enough that he got a really good shot off and uh, ended that guy. Then Jehu said to Bidkar, his captain, pick him up and throw him into the tract of the field of Naboth the Jezreelite. And look what he says, for remember... When you and I were riding together behind Ahab, his father, that's when they were in the chariot riding behind him, that the Lord laid this burden upon him. And here's the message. Surely I saw yesterday the blood of Naboth and the blood of his son, says the Lord. And I will repay you in this plot, says the Lord. Down to the detail, okay? Now, therefore, he says, take him and throw him on the plot of ground according to the word of the Lord. This guy knows. He heard the prophecy that was made. He heard the prophet speak, and he knows this is of God. This guy's dead because of the Lord here. He had a really good shot, but I think, as somebody said, God guided the arrow. And when this guy was done, he flipped him over the side. It's like, we're done. Verse 27, but when Ahaziah, king of Judah, saw this, so now the, kingdom of, the king of the southern kingdom, He's watching this, and he, he fled by the road to Beth Hagen. He was probably a little further behind, so he had a running head start here. So Jehu pursued him and said, shoot him also in the chariot. And they shot him at the ascent of Gur, which is by Iblium. Then he fled to Megiddo, and he died there. So he didn't get as deadly as a shot, whoever put the arrow or arrows in him. So this guy had to suffer for a while before he, he met his fate. Now remember, this isn't them just, you know, oddly shooting people here for no reason. This Ahaziah is also from the family line of Ahab. He's one of them that is being judged because of Jezebel's sin and wickedness. Verse 28 says, And his servants carried him in the chariot to Jerusalem and buried him in his tomb 
with his fathers in the city of David. And so he got a barrel there anyway. In the 11th year of Joram, the son of Ahab, Ahaziah had become king over Judah. And this is why he only reigned one year. He was, uh, had a short time. The Lord took him out. So verse 30, now when Jehu had come to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it. So this is all happening probably the same day, but news is traveling quick. And, and Jezebel gets the word here that Jehu's coming. He's coming for you. And she put paint on her eyes and adorned her head and looked through a window. Now this has really caused some questions of folks of what in the world? She's getting all dutied up, you know, knowing that Jehu's coming and there's all different ideas on what was going on. Uh, somebody said she was just trying to be tough and she's gonna go out like a queen. She knew there's probably not a good end coming unless she can pull off some trick here. But she's getting all dressed up as a queen. She wants to look the part, I guess, I don't know. Verse 31, it's, it's not gonna help her though. <laughs> then as Jehu entered at the gate, she said, is it peace? So she's looking out the window she knows where he's going to be coming from. Here he comes. Is it peace? Zimri, she calls him. It's not his name. Murderer of your master. So she's trying to shame him here to make him stop coming after her. This is her method of manipulation at this point. If I can call him Zimri. Zimri was a guy, if you remember back in 1 Kings, he rebelled and uh, he took over the kingdom, killing the, the king that was there. But his, his reign only lasted seven days. He took over and didn't work too well for him. Nobody wanted him to be king, so they knocked him off pretty quick. So she's calling him Zimri. And I think she's trying to put a little fear in him that even if you get in charge, you ain't going to make it. So it's kind of like just turn around and leave, you know, I think is what she was hoping. But it's not going to work. Verse 32, he looked up at the window and he said, who is on my side? Who? So he's hollering up to the window here. He says, so two or three eunuchs looked out at him. Then he said, throw her down. So they threw her down and some of her blood splattered on the wall and on the horses and he trampled her underfoot. So uh, it was a mess. I mean, they threw her down. It must have been a couple flights and she probably smacked some things on the way down. So it was a real bloody mess at the bottom and even got some blood on his horses. But it says he, and he even trampled her underfoot. He made sure she was not going to survive this. So even after falling, he makes the horses and chariots go over to take her out. It's kind of interesting. The Lord tells us these were the, these were the eunuchs up there. I mean, think about these guys. They're, they're probably taken from somewhere like we saw in Daniel. You know, the guys grabbed from uh, Israel and made into eunuchs. So these guys have a job where you're going to be with the queen. You're going to be by her side. You'll be around the harem and stuff. But the king's going to have no worries about you taking his women because he's made you a eunuch. Now, these guys probably were not happy with their job. And can you imagine having to serve Queen Jezebel? Probably the most wicked woman who's ever lived in this world. That couldn't have been a joyous day. They think, oh man, one more day with this wicked lady. So now that they had a chance to do something about it, they said, she's a goner. So they threw her out there knowing they're not, they're not going to get uh, in trouble for this one. So he makes sure she's dead. He tramples her under the foot of the horses. Verse 34 when he had gone in, he ate and he drank. Now, don't think this guy is so, so messed up. This guy's a soldier. He's a military guy. He sees death. He sees bloodshed. It, it doesn't faze him. So he knows I've done what I'm supposed to do. I'm hungry. I'm getting something to eat. So he stops and gets a meal. He needs some strength. Then he said, go now, see to this accursed woman and bury her. For she was a king's daughter. So at that point, he's like, well... She was a king's daughter, even though she was wicked and cursed. You know, I guess she at least needs to be buried out of respect, you know. So they went to bury her, but they found no more of her than the skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. The dogs had eaten, okay? But somebody said, it's very interesting what the dogs wouldn't eat. They didn't eat her skull, which is where her mind would be. They didn't touch her feet or the palms of her hands, which is what she used for wickedness against God's people. And it's just, you know, kind of thrown out there, but somebody said, I wonder if the aura of evil around that stuff, even the dogs didn't want to touch it. I don't know, but this was a wicked lady. She got what she deserved. Verse 36, 
Therefore they came back and they told him. They said, this woman, there's nothing left over to bury. They said, this is the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his servant Elijah, the Tishbite, saying on the plot of ground at Jezreel, dogs shall eat the flesh of Jezebel. Now this prophecy happened quite a while before. Somebody said, you notice the patience of the Lord. His word's going to happen. It's going to come. And he'll be very patient until it does. But when it comes, he's very thorough. Verse 37, that prophecy went on. And the corpse of Jezebel shall be as refuse, meaning trash, on the surface of the field in the plot of Jezreel. So that they shall not say, here lies Jezebel. Lord, didn't he want there to be a memorial place where somebody could say, let's go see where this wicked lady, you know, no Halloween nights, we're going to run and see this wicked place. Lord said, I don't want nothing left that people can even come back to for this lady, that anybody could even think about celebrating. Uh, I want you to just think about this. You can turn there if you want, Ezekiel 33. Somebody made this statement. I thought, wow, this is, this is very... Very powerful, good for us to keep in our mind. Ezekiel 33. This wicked lady, super wicked lady, she had to be judged, she had to die. But the Lord says in Ezekiel 33, verse 11, and say to them, as I live, says the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God is not thrilled. He's not jumping up and down when somebody as wicked as Jezebel dies. I take no pleasure in that, says the Lord, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. That's God's heart. Turn, turn from your evil way. Why should you die, O house of Israel? So the Lord lets us see something about his heart here. I thought this was good for us to think about and to meditate on that she was a creation of God, just like everyone. And God hates to see his creation perish. He doesn't want to see that. He didn't make it for that. When he made Adam and Eve in the garden, they were made to live in righteousness forever with no sin. Man messed up that plan. Now, the result of that is death. The wages of sin is death. And if we don't come to Christ and let his death pay for our sin... We're going to suffer for all eternity by the, in the lake of fire. And the Lord tells us the whole story. We got the whole deal in his word. You know what's coming, right? So for those of us who have come to Christ, we praise the Lord. Thank you, Lord, that you won't have to say this about this. I have no death in the, the wickedness of Chuck when he dies because Chuck's mine. He's righteous only because of Christ. But he's not that wicked person anymore since he came to Christ. He's not my enemy any longer since he came to Christ. Wow. Tough passage, you guys. A couple of hard lessons there, but let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you that you show us in your word that justice will be served. Lord, I pray, give us this heart that says, Lord, we want to see people repent. We want to see people come to you, especially this time of year. Lord, I just ask you to ignite our hearts. Put that fire and your boldness in us. Fill us with your spirit, Lord. We need you. We can't do this without you, Lord. So, Lord, I just pray for anybody today who maybe thought they had no purpose in life, maybe thought there, there was nothing going on. Today, Lord, I know you're calling each of us to be a messenger for you, to tell this world about Christ, their only hope, Lord, to escape the judgment that's coming. So we thank you, Lord, for these, these tough things in your word, these tough lessons. We give you back all the praise in Jesus' precious, holy, and powerful name. Amen.